Hi everyone, my name is Sai Joshi. I'm one of the PGY2s at University of Cincinnati's Emergency Medicine Program, and I'm joined today by Colleen Arnold and David Wilson, fellow PGY2s who will be talking about acute liver failure. So would you two like to go ahead and introduce yourself and introduce the topic we're talking about today? My name is Colleen Arnold. I am a second year emergency medicine resident at the University of Cincinnati and a graduate of the University at Buffalo Medical School. My advice to any incoming emergency medicine intern is to get a puppy. It will improve your mental health. Shout out, Georgie. Shout out to Georgie. And my name is Dave Wilson. I'm also a PGY2 here at the University of Cincinnati. I went to medical school at Jefferson in Philadelphia. Shout out Rams. My thing is that before medical school, I was actually a wilderness guide. And there's a similar nonprofit to where I worked here in Cincinnati it's called Adventure Crucency. This weekend, they're swimming across the Ohio River. I'll be doing it with them. So if you uh, have any extra spare coins in your change purse, uh, feel free to look out to the Adventure Crew Cincy to support their cause. Dave and I have been working on an algorithm for the management of acute liver failure, specifically for patients who are first presenting to the emergency department with this over the past couple months and have developed an algorithm to help guide the management of these patients. So can you guys explain briefly what QIKT is, what it stands for, and kind of why the residents do what we do related to that? I would love to answer this question. I don't know what it stands for. <laughs> I don't really know what it stands I for just, either, and I was hoping I you could QI tell me. QI is quality improvement. And knowledge translation. And knowledge no. transa- translation. I really want Dave to just make something <laughs> Yeah, me too. I thought about it. Right. <laughs> so it stands for quality improvement and knowledge translation. And really, it's a project that our PGY2s work on every year in groups. And they get a topic of something in emergency medicine and do a literature review to dive into the current literature for the management of patients with whether it's a specific diagnosis or more broad presentation and dive into the evidence to create evidence-based guidelines for our management here at UC. Awesome. So I'd love to know kind of how you guys initially got started, what literature already exists on this topic, and how you kind of framed the entire algorithm production. Yeah, absolutely. We started out just by looking at acute liver failure just as a broad entity to try to define exactly what patients our algorithm would pertain to. And once we had done that, we uh, met with our faculty mentor and talked about what we knew about the management of acute liver failure from the outset and which questions we had that we wanted to specifically answer from the literature with the knowledge that a lot of our classmates and, and the rest of our peers would likely have the same questions. And, and that was really the point of this algorithm is to, to answer those with evidence-based stuff. So really the most important step was the first step where I went to chat GPT and asked, how do I manage acute liver failure? Unfortunately, it didn't really give me all that great of an answer. We'll never be replaced. <laughs> Hopefully. There's a lot of things that we know about acute liver failure that have well, well-defined guidelines for management, like Tylenol toxicity, like fatty liver pregnancy or HELP syndrome. And we decided that we weren't going to work with a specific etiology of acute liver failure, but we wanted to work more with undifferentiated acute liver failure. And what are the current thoughts of what might help these patients and what can we do from the emergency department? And we came up with a couple of different questions. And one was, do these patients need imaging in the emergency department? One was, should these patients get N-acetylcysteine? Another was whether or not their steroids would play a role for managing these patients. And also, when do we get transplant surgery involved in these patients' care? 
Awesome. So I'd love to kind of walk through a patient presentation. Your algorithm starts with the provider having clinical concern for acute liver failure. Can you detail kind of what a patient might present with and walk us through a little bit of your algorithm? So the typical patient presentation for acute liver failure, on their on your history, you'll see things like abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. They might have anorexia and pruritus as well. Um, and on their exam, you'll really have variable findings depending on where they are in their disease course. But you can see things that are typical with liver failure in general, like jaundice, uh, asterisk asterixis, excuse me, hepatic encephalopathy, things of that nature. And what our algorithm really starts with is having clinical concern for acute liver failure. The definition of that would require some laboratory studies. So off the bat, you're going to be ordering things like an AST, ALT, INR, serum bilirubin. And in order to meet the criteria to really be included in our algorithm in the first place. You're looking for your patient to have hepatic encephalopathy on exam. You're looking for an INR greater than or equal to 1.5. And you need to make sure that their symptoms have started within the last 26 weeks because then it's not really considered acute liver failure and you'd be kind of taking a different path. And so while we talk about the liver function tests being abnormal in these patients, that's not part of the diagnostic criteria for acute liver failure, just as Dr. Arnold mentioned. It is that INR greater than 1.5 and hepatic encephalopathy. So while AST and ALT might be elevated and point you in that direction, their normal values don't give you a false sense, shouldn't give you a false sense of security. And then can you also talk about MELD scoring and grading the hepatic encephalopathy and kind of the clinical utility of that, especially when we're talking to our colleagues upstairs, whether that be GI or transplant. Absolutely. So I can cover the grading of encephalopathy. Uh, what we looked into was called the West Haven criteria. It really covers the whole gamut of patients with hepatic encephalopathy. So to earn a grade one, this patient is alert. Um, they're just confused. A grade two patient is alert, um, but might be sleepy, disoriented, or be exhibiting inappropriate behavior. Grade three, your patient is getting to the point of somnolence. You still are able to arouse them, but they have like slurred, incoherent speech. In grade four, your patient is completely comatose. So they're unresponsive to pain and verbal stimulation. They might even be posturing. And then to move on to the MELD scoring. So MELD was actually developed for the model for end-stage liver disease, and it's a complicated calculation that takes into account a few different lab values. I would never remember this calculation. I opened up MD-Calc for this, but you put in some numbers, your creatinine, your bilirubin, your INR, depending on the MELD calculator you choose, you might add on the sodium, the albumin, and the patient's sex. I don't think it really matters too much which MELD calculator you use. I think if you ask a transplant surgeon, one might have a favorite, another might have a different favorite, but they'll that will give you a number which translates to a 30 or 90 day estimated mortality. And so at the higher end where patients have melds of 40, their mortality, I believe approaches 40%. If I'm, I'm pulling that off the top of my head though, so if I could be wrong. A quick post-production clarification, a meld score of 40 is related to a mortality of 71.3%. Using the meld sodium or the meld 3.0 isn't gonna change a person from a meld score of seven to 25 might be the difference between like seven and nine, which won't make a huge difference for our purposes in the emergency department. 
And your proposed algorithm talks a little bit about the different etiologies of acute liver failure. And I wanted to discuss, you mentioned help and fatty liver of pregnancy, if we can talk about those and what might prompt you to seek additional testing in these patients. Yeah, absolutely. So HELP syndrome and acute fatty liver pregnancy are specific to our pregnant population. Um, And admittedly, at our institution, these patients are often seen by our OB colleagues prior to presenting to the emergency department, but I can speak a little bit about them here. Acute fatty liver of pregnancy is seen almost exclusively in the third trimester of pregnancy. These patients present with, similarly to other patients with acute liver failure, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. They are also very pruritic. Bilirubin salts can accumulate in the skin and they're very irritating, which causes this uh, pruritus. Hope syndrome is on the spectrum of preeclampsia. So hopefully you have some clue as to what's going on in these patients. They might tell you that they've had protein in their urine at their outpatient OBGYN visits. Hypertension should clue you in as well. Um, And they'll they'll have signs of liver injury and hemolysis as well as thrombocytopenia on the basic labs that you order. And so I think if we identify that a patient has a gravid uterus and has acute liver failure, uh, I think a lot of it, for, as far as our algorithm, our work is done if we have a positive pregnancy test, because that's our time to involve our OB colleagues because the treatment there is delivery and that's not something that we can do for them in the emergency department. And so getting them to that specialty care is the most important thing we can do. And so that's where a lot of this etiology specific treatment kind of takes off is do the proper thing for them. Yeah. Absolutely. And then I think one of the most interesting parts about your presentation today was uh, talking about administering NAC for these patients and steroids or no steroids. So I would love to hear about both of those things as well. Oh my gosh. I geeked out on (laughs) the decision of to NAC or not to NAC, or as I like to call it, NAC that. Shout out to Akon and his legendary song, Smack That, which we're going to be changing. We know that NAC is useful for Tylenol toxicity and Tylenol overdoses because it has a very specific mechanism of action that allows you to reduce the toxic metabolite of Tylenol. In all the other cases of acute liver failure, there's no like toxic metabolite that we know of that NAC is doing anything for. But early on, there were some mouse studies that showed that NAC could increase hepatic-specific blood flow, increase mitochondrial activity, and decrease systemic inflammation and potentially improve acute liver failure. Those are just like mouse models and don't mean much of anything to me as an emergency medicine doctor, but a bunch of people much smarter than I took on the role of doing some studies to see if this was gonna actually work and play out in real life. And so there's been a handful of studies, none of them have been particularly large, but there was a few systematic reviews and meta-analyses over the past couple of years. And so I, took a look at the studies within those systematic reviews. And it seems like there's a pretty strong indication that there's a benefit to giving NAC, specifically to those patients with early hepatic encephalopathy. So that West Haven grade one or two hepatic encephalopathy. Uh, This was shown in a randomized control trial uh, by a group led by Dr. Lee in 2009. And again, in a study uh, with Dr. Singh in 2013, There was another study that showed a really significant benefit, but was an outlier in all of these meta-analyses that kind of raises some eyebrows. But I think at the end of the day, what my literature review showed was NAC is overall a very safe drug. It's got 
minimal side effects, most likely to have nausea and vomiting somewhere on like the four to 20% range on that 20% when you're giving it orally and has the potential to save folks from needing a liver transplant. So at the end of the day, our recommendation was to knack that. And while we might be knacking that, um, it's going to be a no uh, for steroids uh, for us. The reason we ask this question is because steroids are often given to patients with alcoholic hepatitis, and, and that does have a lot of evidence behind it. So our question when we started this, one of our questions was whether there was any role for non-alcoholic acute liver failure. And the answer we ended up settling on was a question mark to know. The reason that it might be useful is in about the 5% of patients who have acute liver failure due to fulminant autoimmune hepatitis. And it would make a lot of sense in that case to use steroids because we know for the more chronic smoldering cases of autoimmune hepatitis, that's really the cornerstone of their treatment. However, there's been small scale studies that show that it is helpful in those patients. However, the largest study that we could find um, that was done in 2014 did show that it might improve rates of survival without transplant. However, there was no difference in mortality when, when given to patients with acute liver failure from autoimmune hepatitis, from drug-induced liver injury, or from indeterminate causes of acute liver failure. And the thing that, that really kind of made me tip the other way when it came to steroids was that they actually found worse mortality in patients that received steroids that had the most severe disease at onset. Um, and that was evidenced by a MELD score greater than 40. Those patients had worse outcomes when they were given steroids, regardless of the etiology of their acute liver failure amongst those three causes. So ultimately, our recommendation is to defer to the uh, the folks that will be managing these patients inpatient uh, because they are certainly going to be admitted to the hospital. These are universally very sick patients, but we did not feel that the evidence was really compelling enough either way to start in the emergency department. Awesome. So I think one of the most valuable parts of your presentation today during our Grand Rounds segment was the summary side at the end. So if you guys want to run through those points and do a quick summary to end off this podcast. Okay, so our recommendations are as follows. In patients presenting with acute liver failure due to an indeterminate etiology, especially if you have suspicion for Bud-Chiari syndrome, your best first-line imaging should be a right upper quadrant ultrasound with Doppler, if that is available to you. Otherwise, a CT of the abdomen and pelvis will suffice. Our next recommendation was to give N-acetylcysteine with patients, uh, to patients with low-grade hepatic encephalopathy with acute liver failure. We recommend against indiscriminate steroid use for patients in acute liver failure, but think it's worth the discussion with your inpatient hepatologist if you have concern for autoimmune hepatitis specifically. And then here you see our management partners in the emergency department are going to be the GI team and transplant hepatology. So that's gonna be our first call rather than transplant surgery. Uh, and the last two things that we looked at just a little bit more briefly was that polyethylene glycol is shown to have a benefit in improving hepatic encephalopathy just as much as lactulose or maybe more. So if you're going to get something started, polyethylene glycol is a reasonable decision, potentially in, an, in addition to lactulose. And the last thing that we looked at, uh, which as we were doing our research, uh, some new guidelines came out. So old guidelines had recommended a one-time dose of vitamin K because these patients are overall vitamin K deficient, which also adds to their coagulopathy in addition to their synthetic dysfunction. But the most recent guidelines don't recommend any additional vitamin K unless there's concern for bleeding. 
All right. And that's all we have time for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining on this episode of Taming the Shrew, where we talked about our QIKT relating to acute liver failure. We will have the algorithm uploaded in the comment section of this podcast episode, and it will link directly to the Taming the Shrew website. Hope you learned something. We certainly all learned what QIKT stands for today. So (laughs) have a good one, and we'll see you next time.